Hey, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Feel free to reward yourself and at the same time support Journal Feed through the CME credits that we now offer through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This podcast is the audio version of the past week's Journal Feed summaries, which this week were brought to you by the elegant Vivian Lay, Alex Chen, and Clay Smith. The first article was titled Vitamin K versus Warfarin Interruption Alone in Patients Without Bleeding and an International Normalized Ratio Greater Than 10 out of the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Many, many patients are sustained on warfarin. Sometimes the dosing isn't what we want it to be, though. With doses too high, there's an increased risk of bleeding complications. For those who present with an INR over 10, but without significant bleeding, there's not much evidence on how to manage these patients. The current guidelines recommend giving vitamin K to these patients, but are we really helping? This was a retrospective cohort study of 809 adult patients on chronic warfarin therapy who had an INR over 10 and no symptoms of bleeding. 41% of patients received vitamin K and the others did not. Most of these patients were elderly with a mean age of 72 and most of them as well with a high burden of illness. Comparing the groups, there was no significant difference in the rate of breathing or thromboembolism at 30 days. Additionally, the mean time to an INR under 4 was similar in both groups at a little under 2 days. To really bring home the results of the study, a randomized prospective study will be needed. But I believe that this study provides a lot of good food for thought. In a spoonful, in asymptomatic patients with INRs above 10, vitamin K administration was not associated with improved clinical outcomes. Next, the second article, titled Double Sequential External Defibrillation for Ventricular Fibrillation, the DOSE-VF Pilot Randomized Control Trial out of the Journal of Resuscitation. There are several cardiac rhythms out there that we are rightfully afraid of. One such rhythm is refractory ventricular fibrillation, as it comes with a very high mortality. To treat VFib, we need defibrillation, which has been done in a fairly standard way for a while now. Here we present two alternative defibrillation strategies that have been proposed. First is the double sequential external defibrillation which is two rapid sequential shocks given by two defibrillators with pads attached in two different planes. And the other is vector change defibrillation, which is switching pads from the anterior lateral to the anterior posterior position. This pilot study sought to determine the feasibility and safety of a full-scale RCT to compare these strategies against standard of care, while providing some data on the efficacy for refractory VFib. This was a three-arm cluster-randomized pilot study with crossover, conducted in four EMS services in Ontario, Canada. All adults presenting with a refractory VFib during non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were included in the study, and each EMS service was randomized to one technique for six months and then crossed over to another defibrillation strategy for another six months. A total of 152 patients were enrolled, and almost 90% of them received the assigned defibrillation strategy. VFib termination was achieved in 67% in the standard defibrillation group, compared to 82% in the vector change group and 86% in the double sequential external group. So we're seeing some benefit in the alternative strategies. 
Returnal spontaneous circulation, on the other hand, was achieved in 25% in the standard group and 39 and 40% in the vector change in double sequential external groups, respectively. So we're actually seeing some pretty positive data here. And while it would have been nice to see some patient-oriented outcomes, this initial data seems to support the use of these strategies while we wait for a full RCT. All right, in a spoonful, this study suggests that vector change defibrillation and double sequential external defibrillation are safe and feasible treatments for refractory VFib, as well as improving the rates of return of spontaneous circulation. Now onto the third article titled, What is the Accuracy of the Aortic Dissection Detection Score Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine? On the list of can't-miss diagnoses for chest pain is the frightful aortic dissection. Typically easily ruled out with a scan, but it's best we don't scan everyone. Honestly, that would be bad stewardship of our resources. I sure wish there was a decision aid to help decide who to scan. Hey, how does the aortic dissection detection risk score sound? This article was actually a brief synopsis of a systematic review published elsewhere. So that's right, guys, we're getting pretty meta here. This is a podcast of a summary of a summary of a publication. The systematic review included nine studies, only one of which was not retrospective. They found that the aortic dissection detection risk score had a sensitivity of 94% and a specificity of 40% when the score was zero. If you added a D-dimer as well, then the sensitivity reached 99%, and the specificity fell down a little bit to 35%. Mm. Here's Clay's take, one of our authors. If you practice in a location with a low prevalence of aortic dissection and have a negative risk score and D-dimer, then you can stop and not perform a CTA. Of course, that doesn't mean that you're done working up the chest pain, but it just means that dissection is not likely. All right, and the spoonful on this one is that the aortic dissection detection risk score is sensitive at a score of one or more, and adding a D-dimer improves sensitivity, but at the cost of a bit of specificity. So on to the fourth article, Oral Nitroglycerin Solution for Esophageal Food Impaction, a Prospective Single-Arm Pilot Study, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Oral food impaction, like fecal impaction, but really quite different and not at all fun. All sorts of things have been tried for treatments of food impaction. There's been various sodas, of which I'd love to see the conflicts of interest for those studies, as well as glucagon and benzodiazepines. None of those I just mentioned, though, seem to be able to outcompete placebo, though. So we're still in search of a good treatment. These authors conducted a very small study with oral nitroglycerin to give that a try. 17 patients were included in a single-arm, non-blinded study and the success rate for nitroglycerin to resolve esophageal food impaction at a dose of 0.4 milligrams in a sublingual tablet in 10 milliliters of water was 11.8%, or just two of the patients. That's not a lot of them, especially keeping in mind that 47% of these patients either developed an adverse event of a headache or hypertension or did not tolerate the oral dosing. So I guess your best bet is just to call GI and not pretend that you have a solution. In a spoonful, oral nitroglycerin was not very effective for esophageal food impaction in this very small study. Only 11.8% of patients had relief of symptoms. And finally, the fifth article titled The Use of Intravenous Iodinated Contrast Media in Patients with Kidney Disease, Consensus Statements from the American College of Radiology and the National Kidney Foundation, out of the Journal of Radiology. You've handled your patient, you're feeling good about your plan, and then comes the call from the radiology tech to tell you that the CT scan you ordered hours ago can't be done on account of your patient's GFR. Take one deep breath, and once you've controlled your anger, 
you can rest assured that the American College of Radiology has some advice on the matter along the lines of what you've been saying all along. So here are a few quick points on contrast-induced nephropathy from the American College of Radiology and the National Kidney Foundation's consensus statements. Don't withhold contrasted CT exams due to the risk of contrast-induced acute kidney injury if there is no alternative to this exam. If you need it, then you need it. High-risk patients for contrast-induced nephropathy are those with a recent AKI or an EGFR less than 30, which includes non-aneric patients undergoing dialysis. These are the same patients that you should be giving prophylaxis IV normal saline and withholding nephrotoxic medications as well. You can still consider prophylaxis if the EGFR is between 30 and 44, but it's not indicated if above 45. And by extension, if you already have all these numbers, you of course should be doing kidney function screening on patients with a history of kidney disease. A solitary kidney is not an independent risk factor though. By way of what you're giving for contrast, there is no clinically relevant difference in the risk rates between isoosmolar and low-osmolar iodinated contrast agents. But in high-risk patients, the least amount of contrast possible should be used. And kidney replacement strategies should not be initiated or adjusted solely based on contrast administration. In a spoonful, you still can do contrasted CTs in these patients. But try to keep in mind high-risk patients which are those who have just had a recent AKI or have an EGFR less than 30. And that's it, so we'll do a rapid review of what we learned today. For patients on chronic warfarin dosing who present with an INR over 10 and no bleeding, giving vitamin K was not associated with improved outcomes. Next, two alternatives to standard defibrillation strategies, the vector change defibrillation and double sequential external defibrillation seem to be good alternatives to standard method and improve rates of ROSC in a pilot study. And after that, to help with your decision of whether or not to order a CT to rule out aortic dissection in your patients with chest pain, we have the Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score, which in combination with D-dimer is quite sensitive, but kind of low specificity, so it's a good rule out tool. After that, it doesn't seem like you ought to bother with oral nitroglycerin for your esophageal food impaction patients. Relief of symptoms was found in only 2 out of 17 patients and nearly half experienced adverse events or couldn't tolerate oral dosing. Then finally, some advice about contrast-induced nephropathy. The high-risk patients are those with a recent IKI or an EGFR less than 30. These are the patients who you should be giving prophylaxis with IV normal saline. And that's it for this week, everybody. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. Thank you.